0: This morning's uh, scripture reading uh, is going to come from the book of Romans. Uh, The book of Romans is in right around the the beginning of the second half of the New Testament. And it really is uh, a masterful book uh, written by uh, the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that was in the city of Rome, hence the name Romans. And if you've ever tried to read it, uh, you realize that the book offers, especially in this first half, uh, really the, the doctrinal superstructure uh, that is needed to really understand the gospel of grace. And of course, you see that really intensely uh, in the first half of the book. And then once you get to the second half of the book, it really helps us understand what all those doctrines of grace, uh, what they look like when they are lived out in a real life. This is one of the things that I really appreciate about the scriptures. They never let things stay in simply the doctrinal realm, simply the realm of our intellect, but they are always quick to help us see how these great doctrines of grace play out in a life that is lived each day. And so this book is is really a remarkable book, and, and what we've done is we've kind of stepped in and out of it over the past year and a half Uh, So what I'd like to do is is step back into the series for about uh, seven or eight weeks, probably through mid-June, and and finish up looking at at these really rich theological sections, and then really get into what this theology looks like when it is lived out in a real life. Uh, We've we've called the series uh, Mysterious Absolutes. And uh, I think that's a really apt title for the book of Romans. And what we mean by that is that the book of Romans contains lots of absolute statements. And culturally, we don't really like these absolute statements. If you if you pull somebody out there in the world uh, and you talk about absolutes, they tend to bristle. They, they bristle because it feels like absolutes take away all of our freedom. They feel very stifling. Uh, But what the book of Romans tells us is it's exactly the opposite. It's the reverse, that once we understand these absolutes given to us by God, they become the pathway towards true freedom. So what we see are essential absolutes. We see non-negotiables when it comes to believing in the gospel. But we say they're mysterious, and what we mean by that is that we can't really figure them out. There's still so much mystery surrounding all of these absolutes that are shrouded in the mysterious character of God himself. And so what we do is we embrace the absolutes with certainty, with the arms of faith, but we also approach them with all sorts of humility, realizing that he is God and we are not. So with that, let's look at Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to be reading uh, from verses one to twelve. This is God's word. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I am myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your scriptures. We're, thankfully, we're thankful in particular uh, for this incredible book of Romans and what it teaches us, uh, that it teaches us these essentials of what it is that we are to believe to experience life and freedom and grace. But Father, we also approach it with all sorts of humility, recognizing that there is so much mystery here too, shrouded in your character, the fact that you are God and we are not. So Father, help us to hear your voice in these words this morning. Help it to touch deep into our hearts and our lives. Help us to understand more what it means to be in a relationship with you, what it means to experience your grace. We pray all this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. When Paul was writing uh, this letter uh, to the church in Rome, it really was a a fledgling church. It it was a very young church uh, that was really starting to, to figure out the nature of the gospel, what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. But it was also a really important church. What you know about the ancient world is that Rome was the center of the ancient world. And here were these first believers trying to figure out the nature of the gospel in this incredibly important city, and in this incredibly important moment in the ancient world. But what we learn about this church is that the church was, maybe unlike some other churches, this church was full of both Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews. And because the the church was full of these two different groups, it, it created a certain measure of controversy. Uh, That Paul really tackles in the book of Romans. It was almost, you could almost call it a racial racial tension uh, that was present in this church uh, related to the kingdom of God and what that means. Or who is it that gets into the kingdom of God? Who is it that experiences this kingdom? And that tension really pervades the entire book. And really, it all starts back with Abraham. Uh, We can't really get away from Abraham. We just wrapped up a study looking at the life of of Abraham. And what we discovered back then and what we see is important now is that Abraham was really the father of the Jewish nation. We saw that, that God came to Abraham making a covenant with him, telling him that a great nation would come from him and from his family. And really, the quintessential promise of that covenant was was a very simple one. God comes to Abraham, and he says, I am going to be your God. And you and your family and the nation that comes from you, you will be my people. And so what we learn as we go throughout the Old Testament is that, that Abraham's people, the Jewish people, had a unique relationship with God. It was not an exclusive relationship, as if they were the only ones allowed to have that relationship, but it was an incredibly unique one. And if you look in the book of Exodus, you quickly discover that God miraculously saves this Jewish people from their Egyptian enslavement. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them this incredible thing called the law the Torah, or the Ten Commandments. And throughout their history, God continued to make more covenants with them, greater promises, each one expressing more and more fullness to this relationship that they were to have with him. Later in their history, he he gives them a promised land and and he routes all the other peoples in front of the Israelite army so that he can fulfill their promises to them, to give them a promised land. They settle in that land and God raises up kings, he raises up rulers, and and he really brings them to a place of, of international prominence, all according to his covenant. So he gives them kings and he gives them prophets who continually speak the word of God to him. But each one of those prophets hinted at something. And what they hinted at was that the best blessing, the best thing was yet to come for God's people. He hinted continually that there was a redeemer that was coming, a, a Savior that he was coming, and that that Savior was going to come within the context of Abraham's people, within this great nation. And so when the New Testament o- opens up, we discover that the Savior arrives within the context of this people. He's born to a, a young couple named Mary and Joseph Joseph. And around the age of 30, he he bursts onto the scene and establishes his public ministry. He teaches people. he, He gathers disciples, and he performs all sorts of miraculous signs in the midst of all those that were there. All those seeing it were full of wonder and amazement, and they were asking themselves, is this the very thing that God had promised, that he was hinting at? But what we discover in the New Testament is that by and large, God's own people, the the Jewish nation, by and large, rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Redeemer. Most of them did everything they could to subvert His teaching. They they confronted Him continually and, and sought for ways to discredit Him and His message. They, they plotted and connived about how they could get rid of Jesus, and, and eventually we learned that they conspired with the Romans and had Jesus arrested and crucified, and then later on they denied that Jesus himself was raised from the dead after the resurrection. So in many ways, this becomes a a, a sad and in some ways ironic story where the Jews, who were God's chosen people, by and large, utterly rejected the Savior that they had been promised for thousands and thousands of years. And so what Paul does in the book of of Romans is he, he starts to fill out what are the implications of this? What are the implications of the fact that God's people largely rejected the Savior? And so, if they rejected this Savior, was God now going to reject them? Has God rejected the nation of Israel? And that's what Paul asks right off the bat in verse 1a. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has he washed his hands of them because they washed their hands of him? And his answer is by no means has God done this. God hasn't rejected the Jewish people. He hasn't rejected his chosen people. And he uses two proofs right away in the passage to prove it. The first thing he says is God hasn't rejected the Jewish people because I'm one of them. Paul is raising his hands and saying, I'm a Jew myself, and yet I have embraced this gospel of grace. This this gospel of grace has found me, and it has saved me. And then he tells a story about the prophet Elijah. And he he starts this in in verse 2 and and following, and he basically recalls an instance in Israel's history when the prophet Elijah was having a really difficult day. He was having a really hard day. It seemed to him that everyone else, every every other Jew, every other person in his frame of reference had rejected God, and he alone was the only one that had remained faithful to God. And so God comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, you're mistaken. 7,000 people have not bowed the knee to these foreign gods. 7,000 people have remained faithful to me. There is a remnant that I have preserved. And so, when it comes to inclusion in the kingdom of God, or even the question, who are God's people?, What Paul is trying to help us to see is that we cannot think of the answers to that question in terms of Jew and Gentile. He's starting to help the Roman church see that the kingdom of God is much bigger than one particular race or one particular ethnicity. And if that is the case, then he asks, if that's the case, then who has God rejected And who has God embraced? How do we think about those characteristics in different ways? And what he begins to establish is this, is that God rejects those whose hearts have been hardened by the rebellion of sin. And to really understand this, you have to go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, which is this incredible start to this incredible book. And in Romans chapter 1, it talks about the hardening of sin. It tells us that, that all of us are, are born into sin, we're born, in, we're born with the, the pollution of sin in each one of our hearts— And that the longer we persist in that state, the the longer we persist in our rebellion, the harder our hearts become. In fact, Romans 1 says that, that God gives us over to the hardness. He gives us over to the sinful desires that our hearts want. And he picks up on this in verses 7 to 8 in this chapter. He calls it a spirit of stupor or a blindness that exists in our hearts. In effect saying that those who rebel against God are lost in that rebellion and that their sin has deceived and blinded them to that fact about their lives. We see this, this, this idea of hardening uh, all over the place. Um, uh, as I thought about hardening this week, I thought about it in both uh, sometimes really helpful and good terms uh, and sometimes in really negative and bad terms as well. Uh, the helpful and good terms, uh, I thought about, because it's Mother's Day, I thought about the birth of my children, right? I have four children, and uh, I got to be present for each one of the birth of my children. But for some reason, each one got harder, and I don't know why that is, but uh, my wife would tell you that, that even on the last two children, I almost passed out while they were born. The, the nurses were coming over and trying to take care of me uh, after my children were born, and I was just so amazed at, at the nurses and the doctors who who see this every day and were so good at their job when I was struggling so much from it. it. This was a good hardening. It was a good thing that they had become so professional about how babies were delivered. But I also thought about how our hearts can be hardened in really negative ways as well. Think about how often our hearts can be desensitized to the problems that we see every day whether it's interpersonal problems or even driving on the streets of Baltimore, about how there's so many problems that are all around us that we're confronted with each day, but we become desensitized to them. Our hearts become hardened to them. But also think about how blind our hearts can become to our own sins and our own shortcomings. Think about the the sins and the shortcomings that are so obvious to everyone around us but are in a very scary way blind to us that we just are unaware of, that are so pervasive in our lives but we just can't see. You see, what Paul is saying here is that the vast majority of humanity lives with these hardened and calloused hearts due to sin. And what he's saying is that it doesn't really matter if you are Jew or Gentile. What matters is the condition of your heart. Has your heart become hardened? Has it become calloused because of our sin? What he's saying here is that those who persist in this sort of rebellion, those who persist in this hardening, are those whom God rejects. They will not, at the end of the day, experience the kingdom of God. But if that's true, if it's true that God rejects those whose hearts have been hardened, then the converse is true as well, that God embraces those whose hearts have been softened by grace. You see, grace is this incredibly pregnant term in the Scriptures that talks about this miraculously undeserving gift that we receive from God. Grace is it's, it's a divine disruption in one's life that enters into a hard heart and begins to soften it from its rebellion and from its sin. It's this this God-authored divine disruption. And because it is God-authored, all the glory from it goes to God himself. One of those prophets, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, says this beautiful statement in, in the midst of his prophecies. He says this. He says, speaking from God, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, what Paul is saying here is that we cannot divide the kingdom of God in terms of Jew and Gentile. Instead, we must divide the kingdom of God between those whose hearts have been hardened by sin and those whose hearts have been softened by the divine disruption of God's grace. We cannot divide this idea of election in terms of ethnicity or family connections or traditions or of upbringing. Instead, we must divide it between those whom God hardens in their sinful estate and those who God disrupts with his powerful grace. And what Paul's really arguing here is it's always been this way. From the beginning of time, from the Garden of Eden, it has always been this way. This is nothing new. So the next question becomes then, well then how does God choose? How does he choose between those whose hearts have been hardened and those who've been softened by grace? And the ultimate answer is that we don't know. This is one of those those mysterious absolutes that we see in the book of Romans. And so what we need to do is humbly accept that when it comes to these matters, we just don't have all of the answers. So much of it is shrouded in the mysterious character of God. But what is the most important thing, the most essential thing that we have to cling to in faith is this, that grace, not works, is what brings one into the kingdom of God. We see it in verse 5 and 6, which may be the most important verses in this passage. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You see, what Paul is saying here is that one of the greatest mistakes the Jewish people have made... And the Gentile people, for that matter, the large majority of most of humanity, the great mistake that most people make is the thought that somehow we can earn our way back into God's favor. In fact, I think what Paul is saying here is to reject grace and to embrace this system of works and earning our way back to God is to actually reject Jesus Christ himself. Think about it this way. You see, grace has this incredible power to overcome our sin, and any sort of works just falls miserably short. And some have used this illustration before, and I think it's really valuable. Imagine that the debt that we owe God is this vast and great ocean, and we are all standing before this vast and great ocean on the shore, and we get ready to try and swim to the other side, which ultimately is an impossible feat. And we all set out one by one to try to cross this great chasm But after time, each one of us begins to tire. We begin to to fatigue. We begin to weaken. And eventually, we begin to drown. And maybe guys like Michael Phelps will get a lot closer than we will. But at the end of the day, even the best swimmers amongst us begin to sink because the distance just cannot be crossed. The gap cannot be made. And so there we all are. Drowning in our sin and in our shame. And in in, in such blindness, we deceive ourselves to that condition. We are blind to the urgency of our own situation. And while we are drowning, we are all the while kidding ourselves into thinking that we've got this. We can handle this. We can figure all this out. You see, friends, this is what works does to us it rejects the rescue that is offered to us in Jesus it forgets the fact that it is futile and impossible but all the while we are blind to the futility of it all and friends that's why we need Jesus that's why we need Jesus to to open our eyes to soften our hearts, to open our eyes to the true condition of the fact that we are spiritually drowning. And then he gives us the grace to cling to Jesus for our rescue. You see, friends, grace is the foundation of of inclusion in the kingdom of God. Not any sort of works, not any sort of ethnicity, not any sort of identity. Grace is the foundation of the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2 is perhaps one of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures. It sums up the message of the gospel so beautifully by saying this, For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. So friends, if you are here and are somehow trying to earn your way back into God's favor, if you are here and your heart has been hardened or it's been blinded, or it is ignorant of the true condition of your souls, then the gospel invites you to cling to Jesus for rescue and to have your heart softened by the gift of God's grace. Let's pray.